On this week in sales, we're going to be taking a look at our car buying experiences, seismic surpassing 200 million in revenue, increasing product pricing due to inflation, and much, much more. My name is Will Barron. I'm the founder of Salesman.org, and joining me, co-host of this show, via the power of the internet, by the power of Skype, Victor, the legend of sales training and everything to do with sales, Victor Antonio. How's it going, my friend? Well, I'm doing fantastic about yourself. I am good. We've both had some like uh, technology gremlins before we click record here. So yeah, hopefully this show ends up existing in a few hours from now as it gets dumped onto a computer and sent off to our wonderful editors. Uh, so yes, I'm caveating everything that we do with that. Yeah, by the way, people should know that. We also have our struggles with technology, <laughs> stuff that doesn't work. You're like, why doesn't it work? Why doesn't it work? So, But then we just make it look clean and beautiful at the end. That's what we do. Well, then we pass it to Adam, who hopefully just stitches it all together and makes it work. And we just wash our hands from all responsibility. That's what happens, really. I love it. I love it. Go, Adam. Go, Adam. <laughs> all right. So let's jump straight into this, Victor, because this is personal. This might be relevant to the audience somewhat, because we're going to talk about B2C sales rather than B2B. But Victor, did you buy a car over this weekend? I did buy a car. And can I tell you about my car buying experience, or do you want to tell me about your car buying experience first? You tell me about yours, because my story is pretty boring. Okay, so my, mine isn't exciting either, but <laughs> I've discovered something. I've discovered something. You said something uh, many episodes ago, how salespeople are becoming very passive. You know what I mean? Almost like in the nanny state type of thing. And I am here to confirm your findings, that it is consistent. So we went to see four different model cars, right? We looked at a Volvo, uh, the Volvo, I forgot what it was. It was a CX, uh, the C something, not, there's too many numbers, 40, 97, something like that. And then we looked at the uh, Volkswagen Tiguan. Mm -hmm. Then we looked at a Mazda CX-5. And then we looked at a Subaru. Uh, we're looking at a Forester. We wound up going with the Forester Crosstrek because of the actual model. And we were looking for a, a sporty car that had sort of an SUV look. But here's the interesting thing. Well, every single salesperson was so docile slash passive. I'm going, what's going on? They weren't even asking questions. We would literally walk in. My wife and I would walk onto the lot and say, so we're looking at that car. We want to look at that one specifically. Mm -hmm. Not one, Will. Not one. Ask this. Why that one? You know what I mean? Like, why that one? And here's an interesting side note. We're at the deal at the Mazda dealership, right? We're looking at a CX-5, right? We saw it online. Let's let's test drive the CX-5. And so sure enough, hey, we're going to look at the CX-5. All right, let's take, here's the keys. Give me your license. Take a picture of it. You go off on a test drive. I come back. I'm like, ah, it's pretty good. And, I, and then I look over. I go, what is that? You know, and it was a CX-30, right? It's, it's a beautiful looking car. It was kind of interesting. And in my head, I'm going, if you had asked me why I wanted the first model, you may have found out that I probably wanted to look at that other model or maybe several other models, but they never asked the question. In the end, I found out two things. One, salespeople become more passive. And two, in this market today, did you know here in the U.S., Will, the used cars are almost at the same price as a new car? Mind blower. Yeah, mind blower. Because uh, we look at a car that we could get for like $26,000 and it was 17,000 miles on it. Or you can buy a new one for like $4,000 more. I'm like, why would I want something with 17,000 miles already? So it was fascinating. It's fascinating what's going on in the market here. How about yourself? So I bought a Audi A4 Avant estate. And I, so this, is, this, is, this to me is a demonstration of the modern sales process. I researched the heck out of it. 
I knew that I wanted an A4 Avant. I was pretty confident on the engine that I wanted. Now I'm coming from a fast three liter straight six turbocharged uh, uh, BMW, just rocket, right? And I can't get the dog in the back of it. So I'm going more sensible. So I knew, so I was slightly unsure about the engine and it's one of those things, unless you drive it, you don't know how nippy and fast it is. Um, so I needed to test drive one, but I'd done tons of research. I knew the spec. I knew the, I wanted the, the black edition. I wanted all these different things on it. And I found one online. It was down in Birmingham. I rung up on Friday afternoon, said, Hey, can I reserve this? It was like a, you uh, um, a re, uh, you know, they give the cash back if you, if you don't end up buying it. Um, I'll reserve it. The salesperson tried to sell me a bunch of crap that I didn't want. Didn't really ask any questions about the car as in what you're alluded to here, even just to drive a little bit of excitement behind it. There was no mm -hmm. discovery of why is this? Oh, uh, all they had to do is say, well, you know, why is this? Oh, I wanted this because of this. And then the dog going in the back. Oh, I have a dog. Uh, my husband has a dog. My partner has a dog. They found this. They found that. These kind of insights that someone who's selling cars probably have just inadvertently without any effort or training. You probably got all these insights because you're around these cars day in, day out. None of that. They tried to sell me some uh, bullshit paint protection that doesn't do anything. What else did they try and sell me? Uh, extended warranties, all these kind of things. But regardless, paid the hundred quid, went down there. The young girl, uh, give me the, and, and this is the modern buying process. I don't think this is bad. I don't think this was a bad experience at all. Come in, sit down. The young girl comes over, gives me the, I say young girl, she's 30, you know, uh, I'm only 35, 34. Young girl gives me the keys. He goes, hey, I can stand here with you if you like, and I can answer your questions, or go and take a look at it. Uh, we can, You can go out on your own. I don't need to go with you for a test drive. And I, if you don't want me over your shoulder, uh, you don't have to. So I, I knew exactly what I wanted. I knew what I was looking for. This is an eight-month-old car, um, which was uh, 11 grand cheaper than buying it new, going from Audi's kind of website. So all the pricing's now out there. Perhaps the pricing wasn't out there 20 years ago. And um, dead good experience. D did a trade in. Um, I had because I've got to haggle, right? I've got to do something. You know, I'm so so called sales expert. So I battered them on the price of the trade in. Got a good deal on that, and then um, drove away the same day. That was it. Perfect. A great buying experience. It's been the best buying experience of any car I've ever bought. No faffing. Oh, no one pestering me. Go in. And I've done all the research. I know what I want. I just want to test drive it. Make sure that the engine is fast enough for me to boy racer around like an idiot every now and again when I've got no one in the car with me. And uh, perfect, drove back the same day. Well, we don't even have our car yet. Here's why. <laughs> the the inventory, the car that we wanted, once we chose the car, they go, we don't have it in that color and we can't find any in our pipeline. So they actually found one car that matched all our requirements. And so we take delivery in another, I guess, almost a week, if that. So in another week. But I'm telling you, I went to the car dealerships and they're barren. A lot of these car dealerships are bare because of the supply chain, the microchips not being in the cars uh, that they need for the car. So it's an interesting market. I think it's a good time to actually buy a car because I got a feeling inflation and everything else is just going to drive these prices up even further. For sure. We'll talk about inflation shortly. And apparently, I know this in the US, I don't know about elsewhere in the UK, a lot of cars have just been defaulted on in the past few months with people not having jobs and, and other shenanigans going on, right, uh, post-COVID or mm. midst-COVID. Mm. And so apparently there's a lot of finance cars that have gone back to dealerships, showrooms, and financing companies. And so the marketplace has just been um, flooded. So there's tons of like semi-used cars out there. That's why perhaps the prices are what they are, because they're not... Uh... You'd think that would drive the pricing down, though. 
thinking it'd be more of a commodity. So one I way, think, or, one yeah. way or another, that's the article I read on it was saying that that's why that's why there's so many used cars and that's why the prices are stagnant. Um, so can I ask you a question? I mean, and you, you don't have you don't have to answer this question if it's private information. Did did you did you finance? Did you lease or did you cash? Okay, what do you think I did, Victor? I think you. I'm gonna go with finance. No, I've never financed anything. I'm disappointed. I was gonna go. I was gonna, I was gonna I'm go. Disappointed, dude. I owe nothing to literally nothing to no one. Buy everything cash, and I'm really disappointed that you are looking at me going, "Will, he's bought a flash car. He's he's gone for like the more premium version of it all, the fast engine. He's either you think he's skint and he can't afford it, so he's going to have to finance it, or." Or what? I don't. I don't think there's any other option. I think you think I was, I'm a. I was so gonna say cash, I was gonna, <laughs> and then I was gonna say, go find that because I did the same thing. I went cash because I, I am like you. I am like zero debt in my life, and I like I like to stay there. And it, and I, I want to highlight that because and that's not bragging. It's just that you just put away a lot, put away money just so you can buy cash. Because I don't like financing. Nope. Even if it's zero percent financing, I just don't like the weight. And leasing is definitely a big no-no in my book. And sure. so I, I'm the same way. I, I, I like the, the freedom of not having to think about any payment. Just let's get the let's rip off the bandaid. Here it is. Goodbye. I always find and I, I can I can juxtapose this in a second with my partner. Right. I if I was financing, I would end up with a way more expensive car than what I can actually afford. Yes. So rather, so my car I just bought it was like 33 grand or something like that around that price. If I would be looking at 500 quid a month. A thousand, I could pay a thousand a month and probably not really even notice it day to day, kind of thing. Especially if you do it for the business, the business wouldn't even notice it if I did a company car. A thousand quid a month is a Nissan GTR, is my dream car. So I'd mm. be going, I'd be stretching what I could really afford by doing that. And of course, then depending on how you do financing, you have to either pay a big lump sum at the end anyway, which no one does. They move on to the next one and they've suckered you into a, a lifetime of, of cars that have just, you have to just cycle through every three or four years. So that's why I don't do it. I feel like if I can't afford it in cash, I don't buy it. Same with iPhones, same with um, Macs, anything. If I can't, if I'm like, well, you know, 50 quid a month doesn't sound too bad. If I can't pay a grand for something like an iPhone, a Mac, whatever, I just don't, I just wait three or four years until I want to do that. Now, juxtaposing that, my partner, uh, she's a doctor. She's got to get to work on time. She's got to have a reliable car. She does what in the UK is called a PCP, personal something, Something I don't even know what it stands for, <laughs> but it's basically a, a finance deal, yeah. and like you get the option to choose to buy it at the end. You get like first dibs on buying the car sure. at the end at the market value. Um, my partner does that. Uh, gets a new car every four years, just because she doesn't own the car at that point. So any issues, they just solve immediately, no extra costs, and she just budgets so a couple hundred quid a month or whatever it is, and she just treats it as a as a work expense basically. I've got to get back and forth to work. Um, so that's how she does it as well. So you can still do it sensibly on finance, but I am incredibly disappointed that you thought I'd blow that kind of money sorry, and not be able to sorry. pay cash. I'm, I'm sorry about that. Well, I, I, I do apologize. I do <laughs> apologize. Hey, did you know that Seismic just surpassed $200 million in annual revenue? Now, now we've talked about Seismic in the past. So let me just give you their, their, their catch line here. Seismic, the global leader in sales enablement today announced it has surpassed 200 million in annual revenue run rate. And I went on the website just to kind of just look at what's going on. And what's interesting is they got several products, several tools that I think are fascinating. They got a sales enablement tool, marketing enablement, social selling enablement, and analytics. 
And again, Will, we, we've talked about this ad nausea, but one more time, apparently there's a lot of market space out there where these companies are just growing. And I think it's really fascinating. By the way, this came off the LondonLoveBusiness.com. I don't know if you noticed that website, LondonLoveBusiness.com. Let me ask you this, Victor. I don't know the answer to this question. What's the difference between annual revenue run rate versus like top line revenue? I think it's the so if if I look at recurring revenue, I think it's a measurement of recurring revenue. So in other words, you sign contracts, right? Sure. And these contracts are recurring every month, and I think that's what they're adding up. So I would I would take the oh monthly. of course A R A R R. It's usually an right. acronym, right? Right. And so that's that's how I add it up. That's it's an annual revenue run rate of what they're seeing every year. So basically, they've got two hundred million dollars worth of contracts. If I summarize, yeah, that, that's that's recurring revenue right there, and that's how I view it. So I mean, they're doing well. I looked at their website. A uh, lot of great products. You know, by the way, is it just me? Every time you go to these websites, Will, it's like it's hard to figure out what these companies do. Like, you know what I mean? I, I went to their website, which is a, a, a pretty website, you know, quote unquote, pretty, right? But I'm like, I had to actually go look at the products and even the information is somewhat scant, if I can use that phrase. Uh, so it's an interesting, again, it's an interesting product. It's just another indication of what's happening in the SaaS market. And uh, early before the interview, we talked about uh, our friend, Jamie Shanks, who's going to launch his own SaaS product and it's, uh, it's going to be called PipelineSignals.com. He said something interesting. Well, I think I, think I can say this on air. He said, look, Victor, I was trying to scale our social selling training business, right? But it only scaled up to a certain point. So he wants to create a new business that is more scalable. In other words, really scaled to larger revenue. And he's looking for some of this, you know, this monthly recurring revenue from some of these deals, which is not a bad approach. So Seismic, 200 million. Congratulations. Well done. I've just gone to pipelinesignals.com and they definitely don't have their website up yet. They've got a Hello no, no. World post on there. Yeah, they said July 26th they'll have it up. So July 26th is when they will go live. They need a opt-in form to get people to sign up and uh, get ready for the announcement, for sure. Dear Jamie Shanks. I will Jamie email Jamie Shanks and uh, get that going. Yeah, it's interesting. The I think you get to a certain size. Um, and and I, I'm totally open about this. Uh, I've, just, I've literally just tried to someone this morning about it. We charge three grand for our training product, which means I can spend two grand on paid advertising to comfortably acquire a customer. Now, we don't have a sales team that might come in the not too distant future, but via marketing, via paid ads, that's the kind of, because uh, we only have one product and we'll probably only ever have one product because I want to make it the best in the world and refine it over and over and over, right? Um, and it's not possible without a massive team to do multiple kind of strands of things. So we've got this one product, three grand, I can spend two grand to acquire a customer and that works great. Now, if you have a sales team, what you want probably is monthly reoccurring revenue because then you can get people on board for 10 years. It's much more difficult to get them onboarded and to sign them up. You need that personal touch from a salesperson probably to do it, uh, and especially to keep them over the longer term. And then you need customer success on the back of it. And so you get the snowball effect of monthly returning, uh, monthly reoccurring revenue of it allows you to then pay your staff on cash that you know it's coming in which allows you to get more staff, drives more revenue and revenue and revenue. And I think that probably is the future of these companies if you want to grow hyper fast that um, monthly. And, uh, and also it increases the, the, the value of the company as well, to be very frank. Oh, yeah. oh, I agree. I mean, the more contracts you have signed, I mean, yeah. the more the valuation is going to be. I agree. So I, I get what he's saying. He wants to go from probably 
smaller contracts, one-off deals into that world. And uh, good luck to him. Yeah. Like I said, I think he's going to do well. Uh, by the way, he described the product to me and I really liked it. So, Cool. All right, then we'll, we'll link to that. We'll talk about it when it launches on This Week in Sales, which you can find over at thisweekinsales.com. Next post here is from hbr.org. It's entitled, How B2B Firms Can Price With Confidence As Inflation Rises. Now, do you have a, before I kind of half BS and half just give a wishy-washy um, definition of inflation, do you have a clear definition of what inflation is, Victor? Someone once gave me this analogy, which I thought was the best analogy, because I'm very visual, right? It says, imagine you have a glass of wine, right? And the government comes in and takes a sip of your wine and then refills it with water, the part they sipped. The next year, they do the same thing to the point where after so many years, the wine almost no longer exists. It dilutes itself. I thought that was the best example of inflation I've ever heard. Sure. That's mine. Yep. I've got a similar analogy of if you've got a car and you want to buy a car and there's two or three people haggling over it and we give them all a million quid, well, they're all going to be willing to spend more for the same car. And so the value per dollar per pound uh, is, is, going to, is going to change. So if you just print money, if you give people money, if the market force is going back and forth for uh, putting, putting more cash into the market, then the price of things goes up as long as the, the number of things or the quality of things stays the same, which typically it does over time. So with inflation, I feel like there's some, we've not talked about this on the show, but I feel like this could be an interesting topic to look at now over the next six to 12 months moving forward. Because many, quoting from this article here from hbr.org, many B2B companies granted their customers pricing relief due to the pandemic, meaning that they're already sunk into this because inflation's happening all the time, whether we like it or not. It's probably accelerating right this moment in time that we record. And companies even making the problem even worse of frozen pricing, of giving price reductions to keep customers on board. People might be working at cost where they were making decent profit margins prior. Uh, there's all kinds of shenanigans going on that makes this problem worse for not just salespeople who, who are, we're going to discuss increasing pricing in a second, who have to probably deal with some of this on the front end, face, customer facing end. But from a business perspective, it's very likely that huge swaths, huge portions of industries have just had all of their margins wiped out and they've just been trying to stay alive over the past 18 months. And so this is going to be uh, almost like, an, is it fair to say that price increases are coming and price increases are going to become an, somewhat of an epidemic in its own right over the next 12 months or so? I would agree with you. I would agree with you. And by the way, I love this topic. I'd never really thought about to you, you know, highlight this. So I'm glad you did. So you know, keep going because this is a great topic. So the I'll give my own thoughts in a second, but HBR came up with five strategies to help B2B firms and inadvertently salespeople manage price increases intelligently. So first off, they said you should treat customers differently depending on how valuable they are to your business. And this is happening slowly in B2B sales regardless as we start to customize service, customize pricing, customize the value that we give to different uh, brands. It might be that if you've bought one Porsche from me in the past, you get the, the, the sticker price. If you've bought 25, then you get a discount. You get invited to Porsche track days. You get invited to buy cars. I know Ferrari do this. You can't buy certain Ferraris unless you've bought Ferraris for 20 years previously. You just don't get access to them. You physically cannot get them. And obviously, if you want to buy one new before everyone else has one in the, in the marketplace, uh, you need to go via Ferrari specifically rather than going secondhand. Um, so treating customers differently according to how valuable they are to your business and probably getting rid of, if you're selling to a customer at cost, 
you might be making money as a salesperson on commission of just getting a deal done, but the business it might be going backwards by acquiring that customer. If there is an opportunity to upsell them, if there is an opportunity to do a nearly instant price increase, then it might be better not to deal with that customer in the first place. So that's number one. Number two, exchange price for other valuable features. And I feel like this is similar as well uh, at the first point. Uh, so quote from the article, B2B companies can pass on, for example, surcharges for fuel, expedited shipping, inventory holding, and longer permit payment terms. Basically, you're just trying to eke out a little bit more profit on this one, aren't you? Sure. A good strategy. For sure. And this can get messy as well, right? If I go to buy um, the Audi I bought at the weekend, and then they go, well, there's this charge, and then there's a charge for cleaning it, then there's this, and there's this. Well, that takes some of the edge off the, the deal itself. And so you've got to be uh, somewhat intelligent with all this. Next, enforcing what's in your contracts. I thought this one was really interesting, Victor. How, uh, there's, there's no there's no number to put on this, but I, I want to throw it at you. What percentage of contracts, legally binding contracts, between companies that haven't been dissolved that still exist, do you think mm -hmm. just aren't being fulfilled right now? Because one company just went, we're not paying that, come back to us after the pandemic. That are not being fulfilled, right? Uh, that are being fulfilled. You are still so using my training platform, but I said I'm not paying you for the next 12 months until the pandemic clears and we'll sort it out after the fact. 70%. Yep. I mean, I mean, there's a ton of awkward conversations that come in for salespeople in the next, yeah. uh, as, as the pandemic winds down and as we go, well, okay, we've given you a bit of, uh, we've given you a bit of rope on, on, on this contract. We tried to be lenient, but now we actually need some cash because we're going to struggle otherwise. That, this is a really, this is a really, you're right. This is a really interesting topic, isn't it? Because by not enforcing the contracts almost immediately, people still use your services. But over time, people almost devalue yep. the service because it's already been used and it's gone. And so that's interesting. This is an interesting concept. For sure. You know, and we'll get on to price increases in, in general and strategies for this. This is what I really mm, want to quiz you on mm. uh, in a second bit. Perhaps we can get some um, training out of this point. But just to go for the other two uh, points here. So that's treat customers differently depending on how valuable they are to your business. Exchange price for other valuable features, variable features. Uh, enforce what's in your contracts. Consider indirect increases. So bumping up uh, shipping price rather than your, your core product price. Uh, and adjusting your product mix, perhaps getting rid of uh, products that are losing your money, get rid of any lost leaders for the moment and focus on your most viable customers. So with all that said then, Victor, um, I've got a framework here from our training, which I can share in a second of how we teach uh, upselling uh, customers because this has happened pre-pandemic, post-pandemic and, and should with inflation and all these other market variables, this price increases naturally going to happen over time. Uh, but have you got any insights to share on this idea of selling a price increase to hopefully an already happy customer. No, I mean, I, I like all the points. I mean, this is really a great find, you know, because I had never thought about this well. And so just some of these highlights here, just, I mean, even I'm thinking through this going, yeah, you're right, you're right. Mm -hmm. So we need to kind of emphasize that. So I love that. So I got nothing to add. I got I got to really read that article and reflect on it before I can actually, look at that, I actually said that to you. I got to read an article <laughs> and actually reflect on well, it. Well, Victor. Before I, I give you some feedback. <laughs> you'll, you'll find the article in the show notes of this episode over at thisweekinsales.com, where you can also ask us questions. If there's anything you want us to include in next week's show, you can ping us a message on the. So in our training over at salesman.org, Selling Made Simple Academy, we have, what we, I want, try not to plug it, but I want to give the, the training. I want to give the value. So we have all these kind of frameworks. And one framework that we have is our upselling framework. And we do it for price increases, uh, product changes, but we'll focus on price increases here. 
So if there's a price increase you want to sell, three steps. Document the results that you're currently giving to the buyer. There's something that salespeople do wrong all of the time. They close a deal, they move on to the next. They hope that customer service is doing some work behind the scenes. Alternatively, hopefully you've got a customer success team that's doing this. But you need to document what you've been doing behind the scenes for the last 12 months, the results that the company has got, so that when you come round to a price increase, it's not just a fresh conversation out of the blue and the buyer's like, hey, what we've been using the software. I think, I think we've got an ROI out of it. Aren't you supposed to tell me this? Quarterly reports, just a PDF, creating Microsoft Word. You've done this, you've achieved this, you've had this out of the back end of it. This, it's You're making money on, on working with us. You're saving time, whatever it is. So document your results. Next, step two, review the buying process. So what we want to do here is explain to the buyer how much of a pain at the arse it was to do all of the work to, to buy in the first place. Because what we're removing here is a bit of status quo. We want the buyer to continue paying monthly for our product or service. And as soon as we say, well, there might be another option for you. We might be able to upsell you. You might be able to increase the price and maybe increase some value. They're going to go, hmm, maybe it's time we look around. Maybe we try and uh, you know, have another look at the marketplace, see if there's anything we're missing. That would Do our due diligence. That would be the sensible thing to do. Well, what you want to do is drill into them how painful it was to make that initial purchase. Even though you were the best product on the marketplace, even though you came through you, tell some customer customer stories of people shopping and changing and then coming back to you eventually. You want to lift that bit of status quo off them so that they've got the very the, the ability to change, to change their opinions on things, and then slam it back down so that they stay with you. And then typically you want to give them a discount just to give them essentially a trigger event. So alternatively, if the someone's moved in the account, if there is a reason that they have to keep with you because there's a upcoming acquisition, whatever it is, you can use those trigger events. If there's no trigger event, you want to say, here's the price increase. You're a value customer. This is where we're going to put you in at. Let's rock and roll. I agree. And by the way, this reminds me, I think we've talked about this in the past, like Tim Reister, the guys over at Corporate Vision, had a great book called, I think it's called The Expansion Sale that really talks about, really basically verifies what you're saying is that mm -hmm. you want to talk about what you've done so far, document what you've done, but more importantly, remind them of the hassle it is to switch over if they decide to go with somebody else and then boom, do the upsell. Love it. For sure. I, I, love, the, I, love, I love these frameworks. Well, you know, I'm hoping people go to the website and check out the frameworks and what you got going on. It's great stuff, man. So that is the price increase framework. If you want to learn more about that and everything that we're doing over in the Seller Made Simple Academy, just head over to salesman.org and it's all available on the page there. Victor, tell us about the next topic. Lilt, that's the company's name, Lilt, as in, I don't know, Lilt, Tilt, but with an L, launches next generational multilingual asset management. Now, <laughs> I just... I'm gonna have a little fun with this one because I was like, first of all, launches next generation multilingual asset management. Okay, new solution enables high quality. Just listen to some of this <laughs> verbiage here because this is I'm, I'm gonna compliment them but then backslap them uh, because of their language. New solution enables higher quality localization through automated linguistic asset management. Did you get that? Because I'm G like, what Victor, genuinely, I love you. I love doing this show. I genuinely blanked out slightly then. I could not tell you what you just said. I could I could not repeat the words that you just literally 15 seconds ago give me. 
Well, that's I, I was reading this, right? I go, what? I said, I don't get this. And let me keep going. Lilt, the modern language service and technology provider, announced the launch of a multilingual asset management. Now here comes the definition. A solution that enables companies to achieve higher quality localization and deliver a more unified brand and voice globally through better, more automated linguistic data quality control. What the hell does that mean? What does that mean? Let me read one more sentence by the CEO of Lilt, Spence Green. Yo, Spence, here's a tip. Uh, there's something called the Gunning Fog Index. What you do is you type in your verbiage into the Gunning Fogs, and it's, it tells you how complicated this is. This is such convoluted garbage, if I could call it right now. So let me read this last part. He quotes, Linguistic data curation is an essential discipline of modern localization which depends on training customs machine learning systems. Translation quality is too often comprised by poor maintenance translation memories and glossaries that are no longer conform to brand requirements, says Lilt CEO Spence Green. Now, I'm irritated by this press release, but I, so it, he forced me to go to the website to try to figure this thing out because I have no idea what this press release says. And whoever let him release this press release fire that marketing PR person for doing that. Because, by the way, it is a great tool. Now I'm going to give them the compliment. It is a great tool once you understand it. And what they're saying is that as you move globally, there's a lot of assets that you have to manage. By assets, we mean like, you know, articles, case studies, PDF training and all that. And how do you translate that into different languages, but make sure that the branding is consistent and obviously accessible? You know, Spence, all you had to do was say something simple like that, and we would have understood. But so, anyway, so I think it's so this interesting is, topic. This is an auto-translate tool. Is that what you're telling me? It's a translator tool. That's what it is. It, and basically, you know how we talked about uh, asset management, like, you know, as far as presentations, all that stuff? That's all. It's an asset management that allows you to do translations and actually manage that type of content. I think... <laughs> Victor. This is like... Death, Victor. I mean, like, Go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. Oh, here it comes. God, I knew I was going to get stuff for this one. Go ahead. Was this was this go a ahead. slow week in sales news, mate? I well, here's what. Okay, I thought this was interesting because I'm, I'm I'm trying to you know we're trying to keep this show a little fresh, come with different angles, and I thought the whole content management piece was interesting. Now that you're trying to translate that into different languages, I think that's interesting. Trying to maintain. You know how some languages don't translate? You, you can say something in English, but it doesn't translate into Spanish. And that is going to become an issue in the future for companies who are very global. And so I love what they're doing because they're trying to figure out how do we maintain the voice of the customer through different languages? And that's not an easy thing to do. And so what they're probably having is a bunch of translators look at the content mm -hmm. and then just try to manage this content. And I think for large enterprise companies out there, this might be an interesting tool for them if they want to be more effective at their sales and their marketing. Fair enough. Is this a service or is this a software product? It is both, actually. Cool. So you can buy the software product, but they also have, because on their website, they're recruiting translators from all these different countries. So it's, it's, it's trying to go global. I thought it was interesting. I thought I'd bring something new to the table. Well, Apparently, you weren't ready for that. Let me ask you this. So you, because you speak, do you speak any other language other than Spanish and English? No, that's it. So if you were, and because clearly you've dealt with, um, uh, would you call it like South American countries? Is that how it's? Sure. Uh, so yes. you've dealt with South American, you've dealt with companies within uh, South America, right? Would they be more likely to buy a product if the product literature was in Spanish? Would they just not consume the content if it was in English? 
is there enough of a language barrier? Clearly, English is like the, the international um, you know, language of business. And perhaps this is me being, what's the word, being being privileged, being born British and speaking <laughs> the Queen's English and all that kind of stuff. So I, so I don't speak any other languages because I've never had to, right? I've never, I've never bothered to learn because everywhere I've been in the world, I've just managed to speak English. So the, all that to, to one side. Is the value in uh, localizing marketing and sales content? So the answer is you will have a, a, an advantage if you have the content in Spanish. Sure. But more, it, more interesting, and this is kind of why I guess I'm a little more sensitive to it, and that is I've done all of Latin America, right? And so every country in Latin America, they obviously speak Spanish, but you can tell the difference in languages and nuances when you're reading an article or a blog or some write-up. I said, oh, that's whoever wrote this is from Argentina. You can almost tell, okay, that one came from Colombia. Okay, that one came from Venezuela. And so that's what I think they're trying to achieve, that localization effect where, the, where it's their content. By the way, it's not that people reject it. Like if, if I'm in Venezuela and I read something that came from Spain, I'm not going to go, I'm not buying that. But I think you always want to localize it, which is what I think they're trying to do. For sure. And, and depending on how, because the reason I ask that question is, depending on how hyper-localized you could get, if you could use, so I'm from uh, St. Helens near Liverpool. I live in Leeds, the other side of the, kind of the, the north. There's loads of colloquialisms that go across the, the north up towards Scotland and the UK that Cockney, Cockneys in London probably wouldn't quite grasp. And similarly as well, I've never used like Cockney rhyming, rhyming slang or anything like that. Um, and you know, maybe there's a stereotype for me to say that all Londoners, Londoners use Cockney rhyming slang, slang. But if you could go, you couldn't do this in person. You, it'd, it'd be difficult to use translators to do this, a, a physical human translators. But depending on the content that you've got, the quantity of it. But if you could get hyper-localized and make reference in your literature to, if there's analogies of rather than this building, use this building, which is in the city that the individual grew up in. Stuff like that is clearly coming down the pipeline. And you can test whether it's more effective or not. It'd be very easy to test click-through rates on a piece of content that's hyper-localized for the IP of the user that's viewing it. But that could be something interesting. And that could uh, that could add a level of rapport, a level of trust, all subconsciously with a brand, all from, again, getting that just hyper, hyper-local. Yeah, and I don't know what level of hyper they're going to, but I think that's what they're aiming for. And I, I kind of like that. It's a very, again, it's a nuanced uh, value differentiator that they're going for. But I think it's interesting. For sure. And it pulls on like uh, uh, kind of like tribal aspects of you meet someone who's from a similar background, they're from a similar location, a similar upbringing to you, and you immediately bond, whether you like it or not, you bond with them quicker than someone who is of uh, perhaps, a, and this isn't conscious, this isn't that we're all racists. This is subconsciously because we would see people different to us 20,000 years ago, It'd be, and it, wouldn't, it didn't have to be physically different but a different tribe, different outfit, and immediately fight or flight, there's something happening here. We need to protect the tribe kind of thing. And so if you can get if you can get a company, which is this weird corporate blank entity, to feel like a tribe member that you subconsciously closely relate to, that's got to increase in you know, rapport, customer satisfaction, and hopefully sales. Yeah, I like what you said earlier about that. For example, if you reference a building, Let's say you're selling, I don't know, managed IT services, right? And instead of some general building, you say, hey, 
that building, you know, down the block from you, you know, and then build a case study around that. That's hyper specialized. I, I think it helps, man. The rule of association, right? I can associate with that. That's very natural for me. So maybe that's what they're going for. Like I said, I like the platform. Uh, again, I could see a company like this being bought out in the future, bring it on in. But to be able to translate all these different languages, catch like in your case, you know, some of the nuances, whether it's cocktail, dot leads, whatever it may be. That's interesting to try to capture that. Sure. It's interesting. And I like it because you can A-B test it very quickly, very simply. Um, let me ask you this, Victor. Let's move on to some training news here. I wasn't 100%. This is why I thought this was interesting and hopefully it's interesting for the audience. Do you know the clear boundaries between sales enablement and sales operations? I'm, I'm slightly putting you on the spot here. I appreciate that. Mm. No. I understand individually. And, and that, to me, it's, you know, and I read this article, by the way, and I was still like going, I don't still see the line, but okay. Uh, because <laughs> and to me, it's like, to me, it's like a Venn diagram, right? Two sure. circles and there's sure. some overlapping going on. It's where do we define that overlapping? But I think it's a, I think it's, I think the phrase sales operations is going to be the phrase of the future when it comes to sales positions. I think that the new VP of sales is going to be the sales VP of sales operations. And that's going to encompass everything you're about to talk about right now. For sure. So for anyone who, because I wasn't familiar, I knew I was familiar with both terms. I couldn't have given you a clear definition of both of them as separate entities. Uh, similar to Victor, right. my my definition, clearly you can't do it post-reading the article because you're just going to regurgitate mm. the article. But mm. prior to that, I would have been doing a Venn diagram-esque definition as well. So this is a post from business2community.com. And it talks about sales operations. Sales operations are the technical activities that reduce friction for sales reps on a daily basis. Sales operations may include maintenance of a CRM, tracking data and uh, analysis, setting up new hardware or software for your reps, and so forth. You can think of sales operations as, you can think of your sales operations team as a combination of IT management as, as well as customer support for your sales reps. And I quite like that definition of mm. it's, uh, it's the... It's almost customer support for sales, right? You've got right. a problem. Your laptop isn't working. Mm. There's this, there's that. We will solve these problems for you because your time as a salesperson is probably more valuable than Murray, who is doing IT support, who, if a computer turns on a bit slow in the morning, it doesn't really matter because she goes and gets a cup of tea and comes back with some biscuits and gets cracking. Whereas you have got a meeting and you're going to like write dick if your presentation software doesn't open instantly and you can't, uh, your USB port or your HDMI port on your laptop isn't working. So I really like that. Um, hey, by the way, I think I think you've triggered an analogy in my brain. Okay. Tell me if you like my analogy. You've triggered this. So let's view consistent with our original topic of a car buying experience. So let's keep it consistent. So I think sales operation is the mechanic. The car are the tools and the driver is the sales enablement, the salesperson. What do you think? I like the mechanic piece. It's it's maintaining the car, right? The mechanic has to maintain the car. The sales operation people have to maintain the databases and all the tools associated with the salesperson getting to where they want to get to in terms of their sales goals. How, what do you think of that analogy? I kind of, I kind of like it actually. I'm going to work that a little bit. I, I like it. I like using your car analogy mm -hmm. mixed with this one of I, perhaps sales operations is the frontline customer. Sales operations is like the car concierge. You ring up when you've got a problem. And then they can solve the problem for you or get the problem solved and come back to you. If okay. you ring up a mechanic, they're going to tell you to come in. They're going to take up your time. 
they're going to do this, they're going to do that. It's more, it's more of a concierge service. I, okay, I, I, okay. Is that fair? You're so, you're so, you're so negative when it comes to mechanics. What, how, do you, how do you, how do you know they're not concierge people today? But, but I agree with your analogy. I mean, I, I'll, I'll bend on that one. That's good. Okay, so well, let's look at the difference now between our completely wishy-washy, which is making this more complicated than what it is doing, our completely wishy-washy definitions of sales operations and sales enablement. This is what I thought was interesting, this kind of defining line between the two. So again, quote from this article from business2community.com. Let's review some of the major differences between sales operations and sales enablement. Sales operations tend to be more tactical in nature. Sales enablement is more of an overarching strategy. Also, what I got from this is it's almost like sales and marketing. One's acute, yeah. one's like bigger picture, longer term. Right. Um, Another point here, sales operations are almost exclusively concerned with the sales team, whereas sales enablement involves both sales, marketing, and probably customer success as well. A sales operations team manages and maintains the tech stack for sales reps. A sales enablement team identifies new technologies to implement and then collaborates them with uh, sales operations to make their vision a reality. And I'll do one more. There's a bunch more here. Uh, wait, I'd like to raise an issue. I'd like to sure. raise an issue. Mm -hmm. Going back to bullet point two, I think, I think they might be wrong on this one, but I'm not sure. So sales operations are almost exclusively concerned with sales team, whereas sales enablement involves both sales and marketing. Might be true, but I, I often think that sales enablement is to enable the salesperson to sell more effectively. Sales engagement is the tools that are necessary to engage customers on their customer journey. Your thoughts, Will? Say that again. So sales enablement yep. is to enable salespeople, mm -hmm. right? Sales engagement it's, to me, it's always a marketing tool to engage with sale, uh, customers who are on a buying journey. That's how I've always separated the two. Sales enablement, give me the tools to sell. Enable me to sell. Yep. Sales engagement. Wait, when you say engagement, do you mean operations? When I'm just highlighting the, the yeah, to me, part of the, the engagement tool is, uh, let me just think of wherever you are in the customer journey, I want to be able to track that. Whatever software tracks you on your customer journey, what is that software platform? Yep. We're just complicated this, aren't we? Just, just I don't understand where uh, sales engagement has come from. Well, you hear that a lot. You hear sales engagement a lot. I'm saying they're not talking about sales engagement here. We're just going into another phrase. Don't add up. another complexity into this. We've, gone from a, we've just gone from a Venn diagram, which we can uh, comprehend this overlap of two circles. And you're throwing in 3D chess as like a, a third variable in here where we barely understand the first two. Okay, moving on. All right, go ahead, Will. <laughs> let's, let's, let's leave it as that. We'll link to the article in okay. thisweekinsales.com. It's from Business to Community. And the reason I brought this up is, one, uh, most importantly, to get this definition right, which we, we failed on, fine. Uh, you guys listening to this, if you have a definition, if you work in either of these spaces, drop us a message and we'll use your definition in the show next week. Uh, we'll do that in the audience question section. That would be valuable to hear from people in operations, people from enablement and what you define your job as. But the reason I brought this up uh, other than that was these are cool career paths. I would go down if it paid as much, it might be debatable. I'd go down the sales operations. I like IT. I like talking about software. I like helping people succeed in what they're good at. Because most people, most salespeople eventually get sick of forward-facing uh, customer conversations and they end up in some management role where they don't really care about management or they're not suited to be a manager personality wise and that's that's typically always the trend right they go from killing it in sales to doing so-so in sales management and maybe even earning less well these are different roles that i think uh, are valuable for the audience to know and understand because they might be different career paths for them in the future
All right. Well, let's complicate this even more. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, here's here's an article. Uh, I got this one over at DestinationCRM.com. It's titled The Top Sales Trends, colon, Digital Technology and Social Issues Drive Dramatic Changes in Sales by Paul Korzeniowski. Uh, now, it says AI technology is enabling enterprises to offload customer support tasks. For instance, chatbots are at the center of the new conversational customer experience. For example, a chatbot to me would be sales engagement, which you disparaged me on just a little while ago. That is a sales engagement tool. And rewriting the rules that were based on procedures that often started with a cold call, including face-to-face, follow-up, so forth and so on. Anyway, but here's some interesting data. About 40% of sales tasks can be performed by AI. Oh, I knew that was. I put that one in there just for you, Will. Uh, if, if you're only hearing this, Will has got some funny look on his face that's very disapproving. Uh, uh, here's some other data points. I'll just go through them quickly. So 40% of sales tasks can be performed by AI. Chatbots reduce service call by 30%. 52% of customers are more likely to make repeat purchases if the co- company offers support via live chat. So now chat will also be sales engagement, not enablement. Okay, 79% of companies say live chat has positive results for their sales and revenue. That's a good, that's an interesting number. 47% of consumer would be open to making a purchase completely from a chatbot. I'll stop there. What do you think of these data points, Will? Right. 40% of sales tasks can be performed by AI. 40% mm-hmm. of the least important uh, non-needle moving tasks maybe. Mm-hmm. So great, if you can get rid of 40% of the stuff that mm-hmm. is very little importance, but you leave the 20% of the stuff that makes 80% of the, the buying decision, well, I don't really care about that statistic at that point. Uh, chatbots reduced service calls by 30%. Perfect. I, we've talked about this on the show before. I would much rather use chatbot than make a call. Um, whether I'm dealing with Amazon, I've got just a quick return I want to make. I don't want to call some Amazon rep, speak to someone, um, you, know, you know, the other side of the world, and then you may or may not get what I asked for. I want it on black and white on the page. Hey, I've got this. I want to return this and uh, get that sorted. 52% of consumers are more likely to make repeat purchases if the company offers support via live chat. Um, are more likely to make repeat. So again, that's just a, a quiz. That's not real data. That's not saying customers do make more repeat uh, purchases. So that can is relatively mute. Um, 79% of companies say live chat has had positive effects on sales and revenue. I agree. I would much rather live chat with someone. Like when I was bu- when I was booking the car, when I was trying to reserve the car, I went on live chat and I would have just reserved the car, paid the hundred quid um, of the car I bought over the weekend. I would just pay the hundred quid of the live chat, but then they, they bounced me to a phone call then because they wanted to be able to influence me and upsell me on these other products and services. So that was super transparent. I didn't want the other services. That would have been a better buyer experience for me if I could have just bought or reserved the car, paid the deposit via the live chat. So that makes sense as well. And by the way, there's one final comment here. It says, even B2B sales organizations are creating self-service digital buying experiences and following their customers' lead. 43, register this number, 43% of B2B customers preferred not to interact with a sales rep at all, according to Gartner. Ooh. Yep. What do you think of that data point? I agree. Now, it depends on the product or service. And I've used this example ad nauseum. If I'm selling, here we go, still here. Hmm. If I'm selling endoscopes, Victor, 
Wow. Not the endoscope again. But if I'm selling endoscope. an endoscope, endoscope into the yeah. operating room, I the surgeon like wants me to be there. They want to engage with a salesperson. They don't want to do... You can't buy 500 grand's worth of uh, optical, optical equipment via live chat. Can't do it. It's never going to happen. Um, <laughs> so that's that. Now, if I'm buying software, I want to buy it for a website. I don't, need, I don't even want to speak to anyone. I just want to... I want a free trial. I want to make sure that it works for me. And then if you've got great user experience, if you've got great uh, onboarding onto the software itself, I don't want to speak to anyone ever. So it depends on the product or service. I, I just think that you should have, if you're not watching this on video, let me tell you what just happened. Will pulled his endoscope out from underneath his desk again. And I don't know what he has with this endoscope that he pulls out occasionally on the podcast, but there it is. But I, I agree with what, what your point is. In other words, I think we're getting to a point where as the more we can go into the customer journey ourselves, the less we want to deal with salespeople. I'm with you 100%. And, and this might, I've been pondering this recently, this might flip on its head slightly because there might be just mm. so much content out there that maybe I would hire a third party to do all the research for me and just recommend me what I want to do. So if I'm, buy, if I'm looking at cars, well, I, Victor, I watched 30 hours worth of car review videos. And I, I enjoyed watching it as well. You know, I'm, um, I'm, you know, I'm getting excited about the, the you know, relatively big purchase. I, I like cars in general, so it was a pleasurable experience to watch all these car reviews. But if I was being a better business person, it would have been better paying someone to watch all the reviews, me working at the same time, and my hourly rate is going to be way higher than you know a, a car expert who can suss this out for me. And then they recommend me the car, and I just make the purchase. That would be way more profitable. So in the B two B space. It could be that salespeople just get wiped out of a whole load of industries. There's unlimited content out there. The content becomes so good and so engaging, it's almost addicting, that procurement teams are spending way too much time, way too much time, sussing all this stuff out because there's essentially unlimited information. So maybe they go to then a third party, which is essentially what we pitch, well, what I pitch is the future of sales, a domain industry expert who has the ability to sell and influence who can then solve the problem for the buyer, save them a ton of time, money, uh, staff, staffing and energy, and just say, this is probably what you need from my expertise. Um, I've got great, great relationships with them. I could probably get you a discount. Yeah, I love that. I think you're right. Uh, going back to Jamie Shanks, one of the things he brought up as far as the impetus for this new company is that he said, I've noticed, Victor, that salespeople don't want to put in the work to do all the research on their customers to actually read all these signals. They don't have the time or the will to want to do it. And so that was the birth. And his whole his whole mindset, which is to your point right now, is that if if somebody else can do it for me, why not? I don't want to do it. And that's exactly the mindset. So I think I think you're you're on to something in terms of that being a trend. There's so much overwhelming information or there's too many uh, things to do, jobs to be done that I don't want to do it. I want to just hire somebody to do it. So there might be some opportunity there in the future for companies to think that way. For sure. I think there's just going to be tons of micro niche consultancies that will that will just have great relationships with. This is a Carl Storz endoscope. There's Olympus, there's Stryker, um, uh, Smith & Nephew. They've got great relationships with all these companies and you've got to do it somewhat efficacy. You know, there's ethics in question here of whether you recommend one because they're giving you a commission on the back end and all this kind of stuff. Um, but and regardless, if you do a great a great job, your ethics won't come into question, and so you know it'll be it'll be a self fulfilling prophecy at that point. 
but there'll be loads of procurement teams that'll be like, we'll just outsource procurement on this job. Go go to Will Barron. He's super knowledgeable. He really enjoys all these things. It's going to take us a month to learn and understand this ourselves. Will can come in, speak to a couple of the surgeons, get their viewpoint, create a report, unbiased, and then we'll go with, uh, we'll probably go with what he recommends. I think that is, that is the future of sales and whether that's done internally, as in the expert is, the expert is at Carl Stortz working there. And so they, they suck up all the experts in the space and uh, and probably clean up in, in the market or whether it's people wanting to do their own business and small consultancies. I definitely think that's the future of sales. I agree. I agree. Hey, wanted to share something with you. Did you see that video I posted online? We're moving into the culture section right now. Uh, but I wanted to highlight this uh, this video I posted and I wanted to give you the backstory behind this video called Shadowing the Sales Killer. And so I was talking to the guy over at, I remember last week we talked about Sales Geek, right? Mm-hmm. So the guy you know, the guy said, hey, uh, thank you for mentioning uh, something. I think we mentioned them on the, our last pod, This Week in Sales. Reese is out to me and said, do you want, let's chat, a cup of coffee. We did that. And one of the things I got from him was, we, we, by the way, we digressed after our general conversation about what they're doing. And we started talking about traction and, uh, you know, with videos online. And I asked him his opinion and we were going back and forth. And some of the conversations we've had, Will, offline is, you know, some of these videos aren't doing well, right? They're just not getting the traction. We think it's great content, but it's not getting the traction. Uh, I had an interview with a guy named Jeremy Miner, and he said something to me because he was reading a book called Hook Point. Make the long story short, he said 10 years ago, you had about, I don't know, seven, 8,000 content creators. Today you have, I don't know, like 3 billion content, some, <laughs> some crazy number yeah. like that, one point something billion. And I realized that we're drowning in all this information. All that to say, he said, Victor, I, he looked at my videos while we were talking. He says, I see your problem. And this is this is my question to you. He said, I see your problem. I said, what's my problem with the videos that I'm creating? He goes, they're too polished. He said, they're too polished. They look too good. They look too professionally well-made. He says, and people aren't attracted to that. And so I experimented with this one video called Behind the Wheel. I'm going to call it my Behind the Wheel series, where I just talked about shadowing a sales killer, which is just a story I have about a guy named Larry. And that has gained more traction to what he said. He basically said, "What people, people don't want the polished stuff. They just want the natural stuff. My question to you is, Will, what do you see? What's your opinion? Uh, how do you view that? Because I think this is interesting for those who are trying to build a brand and drive traffic. So uh, just so I'm clear, before I rinse that advice, it's terrible advice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Are you talking about using great cameras, cinematography, or are you talking about being real in the words that you're saying and using less of a script and putting yourself across in your personality versus being more corporate. Right. So my videos, you've seen my videos. I think they're very, they're still corporate. They're enjoyable. They're fun, right? But they're polished. So the corporate, the corporate ease is still in there. The professionalism is still in there. He says, Hey, why don't you take yourself out of the studio environment Put yourself in a real environment and then have really the same conversation. Because I could have had that same, I could have told that same story with my polished background. But for some reason, when I took it and did it behind the wheel of my car, the traction is higher. It's, I'm just, you know, the content is the same, but it seems to be higher. And I just wanted to get your thoughts on that. Uh, so, okay. So, fine. If you've got data that says we got way more views on that video. Now you'd have to test it over 20 videos because it could just be, oh, Victor isn't in the studio. I'll click on this one. This is going to be different. So yes, that, that, could that could change. We can A-B test that. That's cool. My question to you, though, and, th- and th- that I'll explain 
very simply why I'm in this space, why I've spent tens and tens of thousands of, of dollars building this. Who Who's buying? Who's your buyer? Does your buyer care that it's polished? I don't care about getting 20,000 views in a video. I care about getting 15 views from people who have money who want to spend it with me. Correct. Now, here's what's interesting. Again, just sharing my, my initial findings on this one singular piece of data. And that is, I've gotten more connections with this one video, I'll say from director level of sales and up than any other video I've ever posted. Thus far, those are my initial findings. And I'm talking about, uh, if I did a polished video, I got one or two connections. I'm looking at maybe 40, 50 connections with directors and above in a sales role, Then, which then, I think are buyers. Then you're killing it. Um, I, I would yeah. caveat all that with, we do typically every couple of years, one or two large deals with brands, HubSpot, for example, that have spawned the show for the foreseeable future, that, that dwarf all small sales. And constantly feedback I get is, um, you know, there's tons of podcasts out there. Yours stands out because of the production, because of the, the polish, because of the clearly the extra effort you've gone in, into it. Now, I try and keep the, and regular listeners will know, and people who watch this show and consume this content will know, that I try and keep it as real as I can. Um, I, there, there was a, a moment before where I was asking for your advice on one of these other stories because I didn't know, when I was looking for a definition on uh, inflation, because I didn't think I could physically give uh, without just reading from a page, which was just me trying to look smart as opposed to being smart. So I try and juxtapose the, uh, what I think is quite a good set, and all the polish and the production with being as real as I possibly can in the content itself. So that's how I go about this. Um, but I'm, if you tell me, Victor, in a month from now, that I can create videos from my car and make more money, get more attention, more traffic, I, I will bin this off in an instant. No, and so, so I want to be clear what I'm asking. So and by the way, so the point is well taken. The I love the professional look. I'm not going to get away from that. Neither are you, right? Because we we make money off that professional look. Mm -hmm. So that's good. That's not going anywhere. I think I'm just simply asking, just got, you know, again, a thought experiment here is that as part of our arsenal of driving more traffic, is it worth, and I'm thinking yes already, is it worth at least experimenting with some more au natural videos? Do you know what I mean? To kind of just maybe touch a market or get to a market, access a market that maybe shies away from the professional look. Uh, again, it needs to be tested. And this is useful sure. for salespeople listening to this as mm -hmm. well, where the quality of videos on LinkedIn, even just the quality of like headshots on mm -hmm. LinkedIn, five years ago, it was, you know, you you take a picture from Facebook that you were in a suit and you drag it across. Then people were using smartphones and a bit of nice lighting to get something somewhat. And now HubSpot, Gong, uh, smart brands are branding the image and doing professional headshots within the company. So they all look similar and uh, all kind of aligned brand-wise. brand, brand -wise. So there is a natural uptick. And you know, my iPhone now, I've just sold. I've got a thousand, uh, thousand quid Sony small camera. I've just sold it on eBay because my iPhone takes way better pictures than it. Yeah. Way better pictures. <laughs> so we've all got access to cameras quality. This studio now, this would have cost, you know, it might not have even physically been feasible to have this 20 years ago. 4K didn't exist 20 years ago, never mind all, all the other advances in technology. So I would be hesitant. I, I would, for the, for the salespeople listening, 
you've got to you've got to do what the market wants. If the market is telling you, Victor, via more views, more connection requests, that they want Victor not in a suit, in his car, chilling, hanging out, amazing. I know that my large customers, uh, the people that we've done, the, the enterprise uh, customers that are on our training program, for example, they like the fact that even though I'm, you know, I'm, just, I'm only wearing a, uh, uh, a polo no, shirt here, and there's peanut butter all over it because uh, the dog licked me before, like <laughs> mid eating his toy. So I'm not that no. precious about stuff. But they like the fact that it's polished, it's produced. They can show this content internally to their colleagues who are the people with the money and it can be upsold within an organization without feeling uncomfortable that they're sharing a picture of me on the beach in me swimming trunks um, having a martini. And by by the way, you you bring up a good point. And again, I'm not advocating or either or. Okay, I'm I'm advocating and here. And uh, the, the and being... There's still, even if you watch the, the the video I did in the car, there still is a good piece of lighting, and I did put a nice little filter on it to give it a, a clean look. And don't get right. twisted, Victor. Also, right. sorry to interrupt you, yeah. mate. This is worth yeah. making a point of because I'm like, yeah. well, I try and be real on these videos and this content, and you know, I'm, I'm just I'm, I am who I am. Victor Antonio is a world class speaker. Victor Antonio could be just I don't know buried in sand up to his head and given an incredible presentation with the, the skill set that you have. So you right. could be in the dark. You could just be, right. we just see a pair of glasses floating around. I'm gonna try that. Just, we try just see that. a shine on your head, Victor. That's all we see in the video. But because you're so skilled at storytelling, because you're so skilled at being on stage, you can probably pull anything off just for context for the audience who are I, listening to I, this, I, who are going. I, can I do that? Yeah, I appreciate that. And you're right, because I've seen I've seen too many bad Al Natural videos. They're just like, oh, that's not good. You know, you can just see that that's not good. I just, I threw it out there because I, I thought so far my, my one video experiment was interesting. I go, mm-hmm. what is going on? It's a, it's, a, it's a phenomenon that I'm trying to understand, but I will, I'm going to still put out some, I'm going to probably do maybe one a week or one every other week. And then after I've garnered about maybe five or 10 of these videos, I will report back to you and the This Week in Sales crew. For sure. I, I think, let me, um, I'm not trying to be negative here. I'm trying to be. I'm trying to be literal for the audience. Uh, but let me be super positive about this. There is incredible value in taking your customers behind the scenes, mm-hmm. right? And I think that's what you're doing here. This is yes. Victor, more candid. Maybe the same story that you tell in your studio, but you're just like, "Hey guys, uh, this is this." I, I was thinking about you guys. Uh, thinking about YouTube audience, LinkedIn audience, um, and you, you you spat some bars in that video telling your story. Um, right. I think that there is a tremendous value if you can do it still. Did you, did you, did you just say spat some bars? Yeah. Did you, did you just spat Okay. Okay. That's, that's pretty cool. You're pretty hip, man. I, I like the fact you said <laughs> that's that. Like, that's, pretty... that's like the least hip thing ever. There, there yeah. is definitely a cool way of saying that. That's definitely like the 90s like reference that yeah, I've seen in a bars. film. Seen in the eight miles or something still, that they talk about it. Like everybody's, still, everybody's still saying, you know, you got to spit some bars. So I like that. Yeah. <laughs> by, by the way, my, my new favorite uh, rap phrase is carry the bag or get the bag. Get the bag. Is, I say get the bag. I say yeah, it to myself. Yeah. Got a deal. Doing a big call. It's like get the bag. Come on. What are you doing? Get in the bag. I say that over and over. I love it. All right. Next topic. You're you're on. Quick one. Are you have do you have any interest in the Euros that are going on at the moment? Are you a fan of football? Uh, you may call it soccer, which is incorrect, but football at all, Victor. I am not. Okay, well, this is going to be, it's going to be a short topic then. England, <laughs> culture corner. This is England. Uh, this is the first final that we're in since 1966. And- I'm rooting for Scotland. I'm rooting for Scotland. 
Scotland aren't in the Euros. Scotland haven't made like anything in a kind of. I think Scotland got into the World Cup, like the last World Cup, and it was a big deal for them just to get, just to be participants in it. Never mind, get anywhere. Um, but on Scotland, I found this interesting fact. We can wrap up this topic with this. We don't need to go too deep into it. I didn't realise this, but England and Scotland are the two oldest national teams in the world. And the teams were formed to play each other. And they played each other in 1870. And it ended in a draw. So there we go. The two oldest national football teams in the world. And they were created to just uh, play against each other and probably riot on the sides as well. <laughs> That's quite negative of you, Will. What's going on there, man? I, I'm very concerned about your negativity lately, man. Dude, is there, the, is there something the going Scottish on Scottish and about? the Welsh generally just hate the English. That's just where, where did that come from? Uh, it comes from the English just abusing the Scottish, Welsh, and Irish for thousands of years. That's that's literally where it comes from. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's now start another war. Hey, uh, I want to end on this one. Uh, TikTok is taking the book industry by storm. I just came across that. This is interesting. And retailers are taking notice. Book talk, yes, they called it book talk has sent old books back to the top of the bestsellers list and helped launch the careers of new authors. Videos with the book talk hashtag have been viewed a collective 12.6 billion times. Book talk, uh, based, book talk's impact on the book in industry has been notable, helping new authors actually launch their or relaunch their careers. So basically what it is, is that these group called book talks actually review books. And they put it on TikTok. And I think it's really fascinating. And so I thought I'd highlight this. Have you ever heard of Book Talk? No. Let me ask you this. Victor Antonio, are you on TikTok? I just got on TikTok three days ago. Are you loving it? Is it incredible? I, I, I haven't really done anything with it. I've watched a lot of stuff on there. It's kind of like uh, a little not for me. I'm just <laughs> trying to be polite. <laughs> it's not for me. But I, but, I, but I like to explore these things, right? Because people keep saying, you should be on TikTok. And I'm like, I don't think so. And so when I looked at who's on TikTok and the type of contents, content that is on TikTok, I don't think it's my market. I did register the name, The Victor Antonio, but I have not done anything on TikTok. Yourself? No, I, I've said this before. I'll say it again. As a small business owner, my goal is to keep the main thing, the main thing. The As main salespeople, thing. keep the main thing, the main thing. Are your customers on TikTok? Are you selling to 13-year-old girls? Great. Get on TikTok. That's, yeah, I don't there's think no is. value in number of views if there's no product that is in the pipeline to be marketed to those individuals. But I'm pretty confident. Explain, how on. do you explain TikToks and this book talk, though? I mean, this is interesting. These are people who are reviewing books. So apparently they're doing much more than just sing-alongs and dance this way sure yeah but but what are the books are these business books are these sales books are these marketing books mostly the ones that they highlighted were fictional books well there you go so you know a 16 year old girl from arkansas who's on tiktok is probably you know, happy to learn about some vampire romance novel right you know, Will, here I am just trying to bring a, just a different angle to our conversation every week, just trying to bring a new flavor. And every time I bring a new flavor, Will, for some reason, you just, I just, just attack my, 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 by introducing these new flavors. I'm just, I'm just confused, Will. Keep the main thing, the main thing. I, I don't go on Instagram. <laughs> We've got like 17,000 followers on Instagram. I last posted there like a year ago because it doesn't, it doesn't drive revenue. Um, I agree with you. By the way, so you, you, you and I are agreement on this, right? Because I think for me, uh, LinkedIn and YouTube and the podcast 
to me are the three main things. YouTube, podcast, all I care about until they stop driving clicks to our webinar, which is what we advertise on the podcast, and also clicks to the brands that we work with and, and sponsorships and partnerships and stuff. Um, I, I just don't care about anything else. Just, just don't care. LinkedIn, I do a whole show called The Social Selling Show with Daniel Disney, which you can find over at salesman.org. I barely care about LinkedIn because I don't drive any, uh, I drive very few kind of leads and sales through it. I'm on social media. The only reason I'm on social media is to drive attention towards hopefully adding a bunch of value upfront and then people go six months later, hey, um, I, I want to take my sales game to the next level. I wonder what Will has to offer. That's all I'm doing. Now, I could potentially do that on TikTok. Are my customers there? I don't know. But when I say keeping the main... when I And TikTok will eventually age you up, right? Instagram used to just be hipsters, scenesters, and cool people. And now it's you know, everyone's on Instagram. Uh, same with Facebook. Facebook was just students, ages up. And now the, the Facebook's main demographic is middle-aged women moaning about politics, right? So everything <laughs> ages up. TikTok won't be cool in 12 months, 18 months. It'll be something else. Um, so... There might be value in TikTok in five years from now, three years from now. But right now, salespeople, social media is terrible for your brain chemistry. It's terrible for your, your, your social life. It's terrible for your, you know, your healthy ego. It's bad for all these things. And so you should only be on there if you're getting more out of it than what you put into it. And for me, YouTube and the podcast is what works from a business perspective. And so they're the only places, until things change, I'm happy to switch and swap and change over time and react to the market. Um, but the, that's what works for us now. So that's what uh, keeping the main thing, the main thing, that's what I focus on. Yeah, like I said, I would add LinkedIn. I think I've, I've gotten leads from LinkedIn, connections from LinkedIn, but not TikTok as of yet. <laughs> oh, we'll use you as a case study, Victor. No, I, I don't think, the thing is I started reviewing it. I go, this is not for me. Immediately I just got, I signed in. I said, okay, let me go through this stuff. And I'm like, oh, forget this. I, this is not for me. So, so, it, so here's one for you. So I, after we record now, I'll do a live chat. I do a live chat every Thursday, uh, early evening, UK time. Um, I guess uh, mid-afternoon US time. And just by, um, I guess, because it's just automatic, we go to restream.ai or restream.io and it will stream to LinkedIn. Great, fantastic. It will stream to YouTube. Perfect, the main thing that I want to get in front of. And then we can save the audio and it'll go on the podcast feed later on. It also streams to Twitch, right? I do that also. A gaming channel. I get, I have an account with Twitch. Yep. So we stream to Twitch and I wouldn't have bothered doing it if it hadn't have just been, just click one button, it's on there, roll, rocking and rolling. And there's a small, it's hilarious. And if they listen to this episode of the show, they'll be, they'll be laughing their heads off. There's a small, tiny handful of people that consume the content on Twitch just because they prefer that channel over other channels to consume the live chat on. And it's now a meme. It's now a running joke that when I get a comment from Twitch, I know it's one of these like three people who subscribe right. on there. And so I always answer <laughs> their comments before even the YouTube comments. So uh, so yeah, you shouldn't be totally close-minded to trying different platforms and that. But I think I just think, Victor, I don't think I know it for me. And it's probably the same for a lot of people out there, that there's so many distractions, there's so many things going on, and social media, as we talked about before, if you're not paying for it, you're the product. They're monetizing you. And I know that I'm far more efficient when, I keep saying it, but keeping the main thing the main thing, that's how I make money, that's how I'm gonna sell a company, that's how I'm gonna retire early and do you know the stuff that I've just worked my ass off to be able to kind of afford to be able to do. I got nothing to add to that. <laughs> I got nothing to add to that. All right, sign us off, Will. 
That was Victor Antonio, sales legend. You can find Victor and the particular video that we were talking about uh, in the car over at Victor Antonio's YouTube channel. You may be watching this YouTube, uh, you may be watching this video on Victor's channel. If you're not, if you're watching it on ours, I'll link to it below so you can subscribe to Victor's excellent channels there. How far off 200,000 subscribers are you, Victor? 197. Uh, Dude, you're close. I'm close. But again, my subscribership because of the I think the aggressive traffic that's on YouTube is is not as many as I used to get. So I think even that's waiting. I think the podcast is actually driving more traffic to my website and LinkedIn than actual YouTube sometimes. Cool. Well, it's still an incredible accomplishment when you get to that 200,000 mark. Did you get the 100,000 uh, subscriber plaque from YouTube? I never got it. I never got it. Dude, chase reason. them up. That'll look cool in your studio in the background. Yeah. I thought about it, but I, I hate plaques and I hate trophies. <laughs> now Sorry. you're being negative, Victor. Now you're <laughs> being negative. So we'll wrap up the show with that. That is Victor Antonio, sales legend, sales royalty. My name is Will Barron. I'm the founder of Salesman.org. And that was This Week in Sales. Mm -hmm.